A lot of the kids from all over the country now are still coming to the Strip. When it comes to rock star dreams, they were still thinking of the Sunset Strip as it was iconically in the 60s when bands broke from there. Welcome to the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. This is part two at our look back at the history of the Sunset Strip. In our last episode, author Lori Jacobson took us back to the Hollywood of the early 1900s, where film executives and movie stars, tired of being harassed by the LAPD for living their bohemian lifestyle, relocated to the orange groves of Beverly Hills. Their commute to Hollywood from their new home would give rise to a mile and a half stretch in the township of Sherman that would become known as the Sunset Strip and spawn numerous clubs, restaurants, bars, and bordellos. Lori's entertaining account took us up to the early 1960s when Hollywood left for another strip, Las Vegas, and left a vacuum that would soon be filled by a growing counterculture movement and the electrification of rock and roll. In this episode, we're going to pick up where Lori left off and continue through time, from the 1960s to the late 1980s, a rock and roll journey that starts with bands like The Birds and The Doors and ends when GNR rockets to international success. Today, we are talking to Dominic Priori, author of Riot on the Sunset Strip, Rock and Roll's Last Stand in Hollywood. The book has been referred to as the Holy Grail of an era. And Dominic is here to tell us how the center of gravity for rock and roll shifted to Los Angeles during this time. Dominic, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. We understand and appreciate your deep encyclopedic knowledge of this era. So I'd like to start off just prior to the riots, and let's talk about some of the dynamics in the late 1960s that gave rise to those riots that you wrote about. The showbiz entertainment movie star kind of strip, you know, faded away like in the late 50s and it was replaced by a combination of things, the bebop jazz era and the the folk music era. And they combined to be like sort of more of a serious intellectual sunset strip than a a glamorous movie star strip. And then when the Beatles broke, uh, the first thing that happened was rock bands started to try to like grab onto the, the folk music the meaning of the folk music songs and the progressive nature of the jazz that had happened. So you get this one band, the birds do both. And they, they started out by recording Bob Dylan's song, Mr. Tambourine Man, which wasn't really out yet. It was uh, something that Bob uh, had worked with the birds on for about six hours one day in late 1964. And, and, you know, the whiskey, Go-Go and the PJs and some of these clubs, they've been going on with a little bit of rock and roll, but it was more, twist craze, instant dance craze, kind of like rock and roll. Uh, And when the birds came, it just changed the whole nature of the strip and turned it into this progressive uh, political uh, landscape for music. Start with the Doors, start with Frank Zappa, the birds, the Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young and Stephen Stills. All these artists had serious interest in progression of the, 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 the ideas of the, of, of the underground movement. Yeah, it was it was all like change the world. We want it changed now. And you also talk about in your book just prior to that, that the nightclubs on the Sunset Strip played a role in breaking down racial barriers that would unleash this collaboration and, and even fusion of country rock and R&B and jazz. Well, back even in the 50s, 
when the McConville places were still open, um, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, Marilyn Monroe brought her to the Macombo and said, you know, we want to see Ella Fitzgerald in this exclusive club. So the exclusivity of the old Hollywood glamour era wasn't really as pretty as uh, some people like to make it out to be. It, it was a, like a racially messed up thing. But by the mid 60s, you had clubs like the Trip. All the Motown artists would come to, the, the, you know, the Temptations, uh, Marvin Gaye, Martha and the Vandellas. They, they all played on uh, at this place called The Trip, which was owned by the Whiskey A Go-Go. And we had local acts here like Billy Preston and um, the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band and uh, Senor Soul, who became war. You know, they were all happening on the Strip, too, at the same time as the Birds and Frank Zappa. And so with the birds, it sounds like there was this rebirth of the clubs where, you know, L.A. rock and roll was was born and the scene that it spawned, you know, drew people from all over the world to kind of join in the party and, and live the dream. The birds played at a place called Ciro's. It was the original 1940 Hollywood glamour joint that, that spawned Las Vegas, really, because the guy who opened it, Billy Wilkerson's next project was the Flamingo. The birds, you know, took over this joint and it was the class spot of the 40s, now the class spot of the 60s. There's Bob Dylan and the birds playing there. And shortly after that, you know, everybody was talking about the strip, even on both coasts. So right away, like these places that were had been closed or were inactive or doing something stupid, just completely switched to this like progressive psychedelic folk rock, etc., kind of thing. Gazaris moved from La Cienega up to the Sunset Strip. Uh, that was one of the first ones. And there was the, it's, Ciro's became its boss, which is pop art paintings on the wall. And uh, Pandora's Box w went from being a beatnik club to a garage rock dance club. And uh, the Sea Witch had been around since 57, but it you know became where the doors and the seeds and bands played like that way. So yeah, all of a sudden, you know, it was a complete changeover right after the birds. They changed the strip immediately. Laurie talked about in the in the mid 1900s, it was quite a scene on the Sunset Strip. You had you had the clubs and, and you had you know great restaurants and people were walking this mile and a half strip going from place to place, and there was a scene. That scene you know left once the Vegas Strip opened up. Describe the scene that grew around this counterculture time that you're talking about. At the beginning of it, it was really like a, a super hip. Like, like new Hollywood movies were not even happening yet, but the people who were going to be in them <laughs> were there. Like uh, Michael Pollard from uh, Bonnie and Clyde, who was, was one of the regulars of the birds. Uh, Mary Travers would come down there from Peter, Paul and Mary's. Like the East Coast was showing up. You know, the, 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 the new Hollywood movie actors in their youth were showing up. And then eventually, you know, kids from other parts of L.A., the East LA kids started showing up, the beach kids started to show up, the kids from the valley started showing up, all the, the local Hollywood kids, they were all, hey, you know, gravitated because it started as a place to dance, really, like Whiskey A Go-Go and PJ's, those first two twist clubs and, and the early Gazaris on La Cienega were places people just went to dance and fraternize if they were a little too old to be in high school and go to a high school dance, you go there. But in 1965, all the, uh, restaurant the restaurant vibe of the clubs like that Lori probably talked about that grandfathered the clubs in so that you could have uh, a license where you could drink and you know eat but if you were a kid you get a stamp on your hand 
and you could be 16 and go to the Whiskey Go-Go if you want, you know? And I think they still have that grandfathered rule in about, you know, somebody who's a teenager can actually go there. Any new clubs after that era, they didn't allow that anymore. So it was now teenagers from high schools were coming and being part of this new hip thing, you know? And social consciousness was a big part of it. 1965 was the year that President Johnson decided to escalate the Vietnam War. And there was the artists' uh, protest committee. They were part of the Ferris Gallery uh, scene on La Cienega, the whole pop art scene where Warhol did his first show at the Ferris. So um, the artists' protest committee were about 10 years older than all the teenagers coming to the Strip. And they were starting to put on demonstrations against the Vietnam War in 1965. This was before anybody else really was doing it. And so the kids picked up on this protest and the civil rights movement had already been happening uh, in the black community for the first half of the 60s. I mean, beginning with the March on Washington uh, that Martin Luther King did, uh, the I Have a Dream speech in 63. This was just, you know, on the heels of that. So, you know, the black protest thing started first and then the white kids started to come along and be a part of that also into civil rights, but also into the Vietnam War protests. They just didn't really, you know, want to have the racism. They didn't want to have to go to the Vietnam War, which was nonsense. <laughs> to watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs, that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. As soon as... The posh Hollywood vibe ended in the late 50s. They tried to get like all those clubs were, were booking in now bebop jazz, which means black artists. And Ernest E. Debs, county supervisor, thought, well, this is, you know, a depression of the area. That's, that's what they were thinking. So they felt that they were going to depress the economy of the area. They thought that was going to cause the rent to go down so they could sell that land and build high rises. And two of them were actually built. The 9,000 building and the Playboy building were both originally supposed to be banking kind of interests. They wanted to move Spring Street, the financial district of LA to the Sunset Strip so that it would be closer to the money of Beverly Hills. But you know, they didn't expect like the Beatles to turn the folk and jazz thing into like this diverse progressive music scene that was gonna color the world, no way. So what led up to the riots of 1966? the strip got more popular than you could ever imagine it was like you know we didn't have arena rock in the 60s the only place you could see somebody like the beatles or the rolling stones would be the hollywood bowl you got to see bands in small nightclubs if the supremes or the temptations or the miracles came you know you would go up to a nightclub on the sunset strip if them came or uh, some of these groups from england like the young rascals came from new york uh, and they played the whiskey. They didn't play some arena, they played a club, but they played six or seven nights. If you can imagine the popularity of the rock scene, like during the post Woodstock era where people were going to arenas, all of those people, instead of going to arenas and being jumbled into one place, they were all over the Sunset Strip going to the Sea Witch, Pandora's, you know, it was just everywhere. And it was way more than Ernest Debs could handle. So he got some of the property owners, they kind of became the, mouthpiece in the newspapers for the old-fashioned Sunset Strip, which barely existed. So it was like two different sets of businessmen. The old-fashioned restaurant owners of the uh, Montgomery Sunset Plaza era, or the nightclub owners who wanted to have like 
revenue from all these groups and all these kids that were coming in. They were the ones who really were behind this whole idea of getting rid of all the teenagers on the strip. And they had no idea where they'd put them or where they would go. So there was a lot of physical beatings and harassment uh, in November of 1966. There was five nights in a row where the kids came up to the strip and, you know, with the signs and, and as depicted in the Stevens Dill's Buffalo Springfield song, for what it's worth, singing songs and carrying signs. You know, that's what they were doing, saying, you know, hooray for our side. <laughs> and the thing that was the big trigger, actually, when they really decided to move in on the kids was in um, May of 1966, when Andy Warhol brought um, the exploding plastic inevitable and the Velvet Underground with Nico to the trip. And they had this show, you know, which was light shows and it had part of it was uh, Mary Warnoff and Gerard Magellana, like with whips and stuff. And, and it was just way too much. And the police shut that show down after four days. They busted the Googies, which was at that time called Gigi's. They busted at Cantor's. There was just all these little busts going around. Finally, the kids got tired of being harassed, and so they formed this, you know, organized sit-in demonstration on November 11th, 1966. And the curfew really was the excuse for the cops to come in and say, okay, you're a bunch of teenagers, and you're here past curfew, there's thousands of you, but we're gonna start swinging billy clubs. But the kids kept on coming back. There was like thousands the first night, thousands the second night, and then it was uh, Monday, so it was like 80 people showed up, and then the next night, 200 people showed up, and then Wednesday, another thousand people showed up and it looked like it was going to be another crazy weekend until Mayor Sam Yorty came down and said, OK, we'll handle you kids. And they handled him in a secret meeting. And that's when they put the kibosh. They, they closed almost all of the clubs, closed Pandora's box, uh, where the, the scene of the riot actually was Pandora's box. Its boss just handed in their license. They didn't, you know, that was a big operation. It was the old zeros. And they just said, here, the trip closed. Yeah, all these important places up on the strip just ended. The Whiskey Go-Go stayed open and they switched to all black acts for a while until Cream came later that summer and then all of a sudden they, they were booked. You know, a huge group from England with Eric Clapton in it. The Sea Witch and the Galaxy both didn't last very long because there was no other street traffic as much on the strip anymore. Gazaris managed to stay open and the Whiskey Go-Go managed to stay open and it was just those two clubs for the longest time until the early 70s when people in the music business and a, and a bunch of David Geffen and Lou Adler and a bunch of people opened the Roxy because they really wanted to open a club that was going to take the dominance of Doug Weston's um, Troubadour down. The Troubadour had been dominant for the whole period after the Sunset Strip riots because that was on Santa Monica Boulevard and it hadn't been closed. It was an old folk club, but that's where Elton John debuted in 1970. So the Troubadour had a lot of power uh, post-Sunset Strip riots. All the folk rock acts like the Buffalo Springfield guys and the Birds guys, they started new groups that played the Troubadour, for example. Uh, Poco and uh, Dillard and Clark, uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers, all these, you know, Grant Parsons and all these people started to go down. Because at least we could play the Troubadour. And the Troubadour, you know, broke open. Linda Ronstadt was one of the top artists who broke from there. So it was a big place and, and the Roxy opened up on the Strip in opposition to Doug Weston's sort of stranglehold on all the, the groups who wanted to play clubs at the time. In the 1960s, you know, we saw a lot of record studios and record companies start out and, and really further establish Los Angeles as the center of 
gravity or the nerve center for rock and roll. So you had A&M, you had RCA, you talk about Geffen and he started Asylum Records. There was a lot of activity and uh, a lot of these places that were now grounding LA as that center. So I just wanted to give a little context before we get to the Roxy that a lot was going on in LA to, to solidify that place as, as the cultural center of rock and roll. Ironically, um, when the riots happened in November of 1966, all of a sudden, like there was a benefit concert and this concert was put together to pay legal fees for a lot of the kids who'd been jailed it also uh, paid for some of the damages that the kids had caused. The police are 100% to blame for the riot aspect. It was a sit-in demonstration. It was much like Occupy Wall Street, where people were just sitting there and they, you know, leave us alone. And they just came in and started whooping them around. So um, to pay for some of the damages and some of the legal fees of the kids, uh, the Citizens Action for Facts and Freedom, who was the organizer of the demonstration itself, Put on a concert. It was the Doors, the Buffalo Springfield, Hugh Masekela, Birds, Peter Paul and Mary, and it was you know at the Valley Music Theater, and that went so well that the organizers of that said, "Let's start this other thing like it, and you're going to do it in the Bay Area." And it became Monterey Pop Festival. A lot of the record companies just descended on that. Columbia was was uh, a pretty musically conservative, uh, politically progressive label. Let's put it that way. But they didn't want to sign a lot of rock and roll artists until uh, they sent Clive Davis down to Monterey Pop Festival, and she, you know, he signed Janis Joplin, Big Brother Holding Company, and a few other acts there. So there were a few pioneers who recognized the opportunity and came out, and the rest probably followed. Yeah, they all they all kind of just glommed on to the Monterey Pop Festival and said that's the next big thing. And then Woodstock happened two years later in New York, and Woodstock was just like a copycat version of the Monterey Pop Festival. So in a sense, the Sunset Strip riots begat the Monterey Pop Festival, and the Monterey Pop Festival begat Woodstock. Now, at Woodstock, you see this tremendous amount of people, and that's really when, like, the record labels were like, okay, we want that audience. Let us grab that audience, you know? To preview the full experience of the first 50 gigs video podcast, that includes exclusive photos and videos from Mark's archive. Check out the first 50 gigs YouTube channel. You'll find the link right here in our episode show notes. In that environment, with all of these kind of beachheads by by these record labels suddenly coming coming and putting their feet down in the Los Angeles era, David Geffen forms Asylum Records and opens the Roxy to start promoting some of the acts that have signed to his label. So tell us more about, about that next movement in the story. Okay, so so the Roxy itself was a noble uh, experiment at first. Neil Young was the opening act. He played his album, Tonight's Night, all the way through, and they just released it. Then Frank Zappa did a, a, not only a live album, but a live um, concert film. Uh, that didn't get released until recently too. All of them at the Roxy. So that's kind of how the Roxy began. But then like around 1975, 76, it really started to reflect an older crowd. Not what a teenager would would really want to hear. It was more like somebody who had grown up with the birds and then later Crosby, Sills, Nash and Young uh, would like, you know, uh, maybe some like Eagles type music. 
that that's what was playing at the Roxy for the most part. The 70s was a time when this thing called demographics became very, very, very important. Every radio station was going to be one sound. The FM radio stations, after the mid-70s, it became almost strictly hard rock. KMT or KLOS, it's going to be hard rock, and that's it. You're not going to hear, you know, like in the early 70s, I heard Get Up Stand Up by Bob Marley and the Wailers. You're going to hear Bob Marley and the Wailers on, on like, FM radio when Ted Nugent was God. I mean, it, it, it really started to get, you know, different than the 60s when the band Kiss came out, because that was kind of like all the, um, you know, the the bad cliches of hard rock thrown into just like a clown act, right? And it was it was really like four clowns, um, you know, screaming and going, you know, rock and roll, you know? I mean, and that just kind of moved on to Ted Nugent and into the 80s, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of how, how that happened. It was that big change in the middle 70s where demographics really took over radio. And so you only had one style of, of radio station here, one style of radio station here. And there was no diversity at all. It sounds like with this fragmentation into niche interests and an investment in particular styles, and let's take classic rock as that style, it sounds like there was a band that capitalized on that dynamic who was there at the right place at the right time, and that was Van Halen. Yeah, they do in in one respect, they do. Because remember, there is also a part of the story that is not getting any broadcast, and that is punk rock. Punk rock did not have a place on the radio. There was no broadcast for it. And soul music just kind of went away. It was like, either got fragmented into disco or disappeared. People like James Brown and Aretha Franklin Ray Charles were all complaining about disco. It was, it was nuts. But Van Halen uh, kind of came in, in in a way, at the right time. Um, what I saw happening was like, is there was all these parties that had like the standard kind of rock band, uh, and Van Halen was one of them. So these were the progenitors of what we call the hair bands in the 1980s. They were a bit ridiculous, a little bit influenced by glam. Oh, you're wearing these ridiculous vests with no shirts. And these guys had so much makeup on their face, basically covering their zits. But, you know, Eddie Van Halen was, was you know, not like he was a great guitarist, but he wasn't like a Jimi Hendrix type guitarist. You know, he was more like a guy who played a lot of scales and he played them really fast. So it became a little bit more about technical proficiency, much like I was speaking about how the studios started like turning country rock into yacht rock. So too, hard rock became a little bit more you know, like like slicker. Everything was getting slicker and slicker, and Eddie Van Halen fit right into that slot so perfect because he was playing really basic scales, but he was playing them very fast. I thought not as much soul as somebody like Eric Clapton or Jeff Beck or Jimi Hendrix or Frank Zappa. No way. Those guys are in a completely different league, and Eddie Van Halen's over here. But that's what became the next thing, um, and what we now today call pure commercial guitar. So then moving into the 1980s, let's let's talk about how the sound evolved. I would imagine, um, you know, MTV came into being. When did MTV launch? Was that in like 1983? Interestingly, MTV kind of came in around the same year the whiskey closed. Elmer Valentine had managed whiskey from 1964 to 1982, and he closed the Whiskey Go-Go in 1982 as a ruse to sort of get rid of all the punk rock and new wave groups that was the club was becoming famous for Elvis Costello played there. The police played there and very little heavy metal played at the whiskey. It was an exciting club in the late seventies and early eighties. 
MTV comes in in 1982, whiskey closes. So that's really a, 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 a classic scene change right there. So tell me, yeah, tell me more about that. I think it's interesting that, that MTV marks a scene change and what did it change to? Well, the first two years of MTV, not too many people even watched it because a lot of people didn't even have cable, especially in Los Angeles. It was started out as primarily new wave music on MTV because they thought that it was coming out of New York, first of all. They thought that that was the new popular music and new wave artists were more prone to recording, you know, video films. Visuals of hard rock bands were sort of hard to come by. They wanted people to go out and see them play at these larger concert arena shows and they didn't want to, you know, do on TV. It was just like the sound was so huge so they, they felt that their music wouldn't translate to television. Whereas new wave artists, they were into the artiness of making a film, you know. So they made a new song, they made a new single, then they made a video. The first two or three years of MTV was pretty much dominated by new wave. But then um, a couple of things happened and, and, and one of them was the pitch to get MTV uh, added to more cable stations and more people started to use cable by the middle of the 80s. And so Michael Jackson and, and Prince became the, the two artists that MTV started to put on. And then they, and then the Headbangers Ball came on after that. They said, well, hey, what about us? What about us heavy metal guys? We, nobody plays our music. So yeah, because nobody in heavy metal had been making videos. So ultimately, uh, Headbangers Ball comes on MTV after that. Now we're, we're coming into the 1980s. Um, the bands that are now populating these clubs are changing. You've got Motley Crue that's coming up, the Chili Peppers, you know, a, a lot of interesting bands that are coming out of Fairfax High School, teenagers who are hitting the strip. You have LA Guns, uh, you know, Axel and, and Izzy arrive, um, you know, and, and suddenly now we have the beginnings of this new era that culminates with Guns N' Roses. Can you talk about this era and some of the music, but I also want to talk about this idea that a lot of the kids from all over the country now are still coming to the strip to pursue the dream. Yeah. So what, what was that about? There was a lot of enigma from the sixties and Monterey pop and everything that were attached to it. It all started here on the sunset strip. It all started in Liverpool at the cavern. It all started on the sunset strip. You see by the early eighties, um, the whiskey had closed and then reopened for um, bands who were willing to pay to play. These were bands whose parents or somebody was paying for them. So when it comes to rock star dreams, as we saw in Decline of Western Civilization too, you know, the Strip was the place to go. That they, they were still thinking of the Sunset Strip as it was iconically in the 60s when bands broke from there. The only bands that were playing on the Strip in the late 70s and the early 80s were punk and new wave groups, really, um, except for Gazaris. And none of the bands that played at Gazaris ever really broke, they, except for Van Halen. And Gazaris kicked them out early. So, you know, the, the, the mid 80s, it was really, really colored by this whole idea of, okay, my kid is going to be a rock star and we're going to give him some money. And the other part of it, it was a lot of those bands were coming from the San Fernando Valley, right? And the San Fernando Valley had traditionally been white flight. That's what it's famous for, right? So the children of the white flight parents, you know, they were the ones forming these heavy metal bands and they really resented punk and new wave to the point of if there were punk rock kids hanging out on the corner, 
like they would go jump them and things like that. It actually got to be kind of a violent scene. It was a major turf war in Los Angeles for about four years. And then after a while, what happened with punk, they took over Melrose Boulevard and that was a fashion. There was no clubs on Melrose, but it was all, you know, clothing stores and record stores and, and other kinds of groovy stores to go to. The, the whole punk and new wave thing and the alternative rock music thing just went to the complete other side of town and they left the wit the strip uh, the whiskey and gazaris for the headbangers it's fascinating <laughs> it's really fascinating to hear how the dynamics played out because as you start to separate out uh these these various groups you understand that it that it really became this homogenous sound that was that was that was left remaining on the strip to be exploited eventually um, by bands like Poison and Motley Crue, and later even even GNR. You know, I'd love to continue with this idea of the Valley Kids <laughs> moving to the Strip to pursue the dream, and it resulting in these headbanger bands. But let's also then tie that to, you know, Guns N' Roses and how Guns N' Roses was able to capitalize on this time on the Sunset Strip um, to become the success that they were. It kind of seems that, like, in 1984, the Whiskey Go-Go decided to reopen. I always think of the Whiskey as being the, the main center of this. The hard rock bands start getting booked in again. I mean, it almost seemed like the Whiskey had wiped away the new wave bands when they closed in 82 and never booked them anymore. Of course, if you had the money to buy it, I'm sure you could book it. But primarily, those kids, they were, you know, like Tomato to Plenty of the Screamers said, like, these were kids with library cards, punk rockers. They... They were too smart for that. So they weren't going for that rock star dream. Whereas the guys who did come into the whiskey, they're ready to pay, you know? And what ended up happening a lot of times was you, would you buy the tickets and you, you're supposed to sell the tickets almost like when you're in little league baseball, they give you like a, a box of chocolate bars, right? And you're supposed to go door to door and sell the chocolate bars to all the people on your block. And that's how, you know, you pay for your being in little league. Well, the same thing, happened with those bands. Instead of selling chocolate bars door to door, they had a box of tickets that they had to sell everybody. What these guys would do is they get the tickets, they, you know, whatever money they invested, they just give the tickets to girls. And then the girls would show up and there would be all girls at their shows. And that's how they did it. Because that's really what they were doing it for to begin. Okay, if we make it big, we get orgies, right? So um, they started out just by handing out these tickets that they paid for to all these girls and they had the place packed with girls. So that's kind of how that scene started. And then people started showing up because hey, there's a bunch of girls there, you know? Uh, and I'm not sure, it seemed like all the bands, that was the same problem. The loser bands that never made it did the same thing. But in all fairness, I will say there were, there were bands on the strip that were trying to create a new sound, even though they may have been there following the, the glam rock and the, the hair metal and, and, you know, the sleaze rock pathway they were still drawing influences from rock and roll, from, from funk, um, from pop, to forge a new sound. And I actually think this is what um, made GNR so successful, is that they were able to fuse together uh, these influences into a new sound. So I do, I do think that, that you know, bands at the time, there were some that were just trying to capitalize on the scene that you described. And they were coming yeah. from the valley and they were dressing up and they were they're milking it for for what they could and it, until they could get a, a contract and all the girls yeah. but there were some other dedicated bands and musicians who were trying to forge the next sound 
And I think GNR accomplished that. When it comes to like the groups that played in the um, in the 80s in LA, I, I just pretty much saw the same kind of posturing, so to speak, you know, and the same kind of sound. I mean, a couple of bands were different, but again, Red, Red Hot Chili Peppers, they really more mind what would become an alternative rock audience, you know? There was, there was you know, tonality in the 80s of what was going to become alternative rock. I don't think Guns N' Roses was that. Los Angeles in the 1980s, uh, and I think this colors the music of those bands, was a very troublesome spot. It, it was a different Los Angeles then. It was a scary Los Angeles. It was carjackings. It was drive-by shootings. It's all the stuff, the, the crack epidemic and the bad things that led up to Rodney King in 1992. And it, it, it was political was a big part of it. Like the Reagan era embodied a lot of the tonality of what the heavy metal bands had. And I think the difference between heavy metal and alternative rock is that the people involved in alternative rock are politically left. A lot of the people that I ran into in the 1980s were politically right. And, and, and punk rock had always been that, by the way. Punk rock was a bunch of people saying the hippies have become complacent and they're actually starting to run things now and they're running them in a bad way. That's, I think, part of the, the reason why there was this separation between punk and alternative and then the heavy metal guys. It was also politically different. I always like to make clear, though, that punk rock and alternative rock on, on both ends of the metal spectrum, before and after, were all um, politically, you know, motivated. That's how it was, you know. So rock and roll has been political since the 50s, since it began. Well, Dominic, look, I, I, our, our time is up here, and I really want to thank you for taking us from the 1960s to the 1980s and really unpacking all of these dynamics. I think it's very interesting uh, to hear that there is this line of demarcation in the ideologies of different genres of rock and roll that was driving uh, some of the activity on the Sunset Strip and beyond. So thank you for helping us to understand that. And it helps us really to, to put GNR in the right place and time, uh, uh, you know, where they were and, 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 and how that facilitated their rise. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. To watch the video podcast, access bonus episodes and galleries, and buy show merchandise, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe.